Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. No matter where you are in the world, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Whose World Is This with Junior Renee Bobrun. If you are a first-time listener, I'd like to welcome you back to this ongoing conversation that is now in its 83rd episode. If you're a returning listener, I'd like to welcome you back. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you for lending me your ears one extra time. I'm glad that you're back. I'm glad that you've shared this conversation with friends, with family, with coworkers, colleagues, peers, business partners, uh, people that you've met online, however, whatever. I'm just glad that the message is getting out there, that our conversation is broadening. That was my intent when I first started, looking to find my tribe. You know, I'm not hanging a billboard out at the side of the road saying, hey, listen to me, but I may do that one day. And people can choose to tune in or choose to tune out. But at the very least, I'd like everyone. And it, and it took a friend of mine to remind me of that. It took a friend of mine, a very close, close friend of mine. Uh, he was, he, uh, we were having a conversation about this, conver- about this platform. And he said, you know, it's important that everyone gets to make a decision. That's what it is. And truthfully, that's what marketing is, is everyone gets an an opportunity to be exposed to it and make a choice whether they like it or not, whether they are interested or not. Um, And then they get to make an informed decision one way or another way. They listen to an episode, they listen to two, they listen to whatever, they say, yeah, I don't like it. Or maybe they say, you know what, this isn't my cup of tea. It's not my bag of chips, but I know someone who would like this. Or this person brought something up that I actually don't like, but I want to share it with someone because I feel that it's, an, it's a topic of conversation. It, it, de- it deserves, it has merit enough to discuss. Not to, it, it can't be summarily dismissed or even partially dismissed, whether one disagrees or not. And that's been very, very important. Even to, you know, I've, I've received several emails and um, most of them have been, people who agree with me to one degree or another and some have been people who disagree with me but you can disagree but you cannot dismiss me (laughs) disagree all you want you can't dismiss the things that i'm saying you cannot summarily dismiss it and go he's off his rocker Uh, please it could trigger you to do that but then that would be doing both that would be doing yourself a disservice because the things that I say and I've and I don't and I've said it before can withstand inquiry and it can withstand a discussion. So dismissing it does the truth a great disservice because we can at least speak on the things or you can email and whatever and we can go back and forth and figure out, you know, what is we can get to the root. I can stand corrected, you can stand corrected, we can both be wrong, both be right. Or it doesn't matter. It's not a it's not a competition. Right. But in any case, thank you guys for tuning in. I appreciate you guys sharing. If you're listening on Spotify, thank you for following. If you're listening on Apple podcasts, thank you for subscribing and rating the show. If you are listening on Apple, please, I suggest I recommend that you definitely rate the show, Uh, write a little something you know, about it, rate it however you want to rate it and say whatever you want to say. It's fine. But that that gives the show a little bit of a kind of puts it on the radar, so to speak, that there's activity going on, that people are engaged. It's it's part of the engagement algorithm. Oh, people are actually listening and rating and commenting. Oh, great. And if you're listening on whatever Twitch or 
uh, Amazon uh, uh, podcast, wherever you're listening. Thank you guys for tuning in. I've said it before. Uh, let's do a little housekeeping. If you have any suggestions, questions, kudos, concerns, criticisms, media inquiries, collaborations, sponsorship ideas, uh, uh, partnerships, anything of that nature, please feel free to email me. You can email me at whoseworldisthis21 at gmail.com. That whose is W-H-O-S-E. Whoseworldisthis21 at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at whose world is this 2021. That's our Instagram account. Um, Chavezhouse.com is one of our major sponsors. C-H-A-V-E-S. It's Chavez with an S, not with a Z. Chavezhouse.com. If you're looking to purchase journals, if you're looking to purchase uh, 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 decorative notebooks, training logs, gratitude journals, diaries, anything of the sort, go to Chavezhouse.com. Or you can go to Chavez House Publishing on Amazon, type in Chavez House Publishing, and look for all of the products that are authored by Lenore Batista. Very, very important. These journals, I feel, are beneficial to you and I, to friends and family. It has been extremely beneficial to me. I have a gratitude journal that I'm supposed, and I put supposed in italics, I'm supposed to write in it daily. I've neglected a couple of days, and let me tell you something. My day is better when I wake up in the morning, answer nature's call, and then I get to writing what I'm grateful about. And then when the night ends or when the day ends, you write what you're grateful about the day that has already transpired. It's an awesome feeling. It, 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 puts, it keeps everything in perspective, and it doesn't allow you to succumb to negative self-talk. It doesn't allow you to succumb to oh, everything is going badly and oh, man, I can't believe this day turned out like this, man. When am I going to get a win? When you when I write that down, it disciplines you to maintain a grateful frame of being very, very important. OK, what are we going to talk about today? Last episode I did. What did I name it? Was it May Day? I think it was May Day. Very good episode. I was commemorating International Workers' Day, which is May 1st. International Workers' Day, Workers' Day, May Day. I said some things, a whole host of things, like I told you before in many other episodes. I have to be reminded of some of the things that I say. It's not because it's thoughtless. It's because a stream of consciousness is what it is. It's, it's, it's off of the top most times, so I have to be reminded of some of the things that I, I say. And, and I spoke about a whole host of things. I spoke about the average work day and, and how many people sacrificed for us to have an eight hour day, which is what I consider to be a great compromise from the, from the 10 hour day, from the, the five day work week down from the six hour, six day work week. All of these things were little compromises. They're not ideal. And how we've gone a hundred years with this work day and, um, and I spoke about how we've neglected to bring this core conversation of economic justice to the forefront in the last 10, 20 years. We had that moment with the 99% of the 1%. And we're having little conversations now about the $15 an hour minimum wage. But it's still not at the complete forefront. We have identity politics abound, and someone emailed me. And actually, I thought about it as soon as I pressed stop. 
The thing about when I do these conversations, when I press stop, I think about all the things that I could have said because oftentimes the conversation will take a turn, you know, in my stream of consciousness that I didn't know it was going to take. And then I go, oh, then I explore that route and I bring it back around. And um, as soon as I press stop, sometimes I go, ah, man, that was interesting. I could have added that. Then I go, eh, I think I covered that, blah, blah, blah. And then after within 30 minutes, that conversation becomes less and less. Um, I have less and less information stored in my mind about that particular conversation. But if it's if it's so much material that I feel needs to be covered or needs to be addressed or I didn't do an adequate job of addressing other key points that I feel are important or if someone via email or phone conversation, etc., brings up certain points that I feel are necessary to bring about uh, to unpack that conversation further, I'll do a part two. And that's why we're going to do a part two. We're going to do part two of who's in your village. It ties in the last two. Ep the last two episodes tie into each other to a degree, kind of, sort of. And this one is going to tie them in together a bit more because of certain conversations I've had in certain uh, within the last couple of days that I've had. We are in May. We are in the beautiful month of May uh, where I'm living right now. The weather is quite uh, uh insane and unpredictable one minute it's 80 degrees the next minute there's a tornado watch the next minute there's a hailstorm. the next minute there's thunder it's nuts it's not like south florida it's not even like new york it's just every weather you can think of you can probably experience within a 24-hour day cycle 24-hour cycle which is uh yes it's hilarious makes for exciting um makes for an exciting day but in any case um we're going to call this Who's in Your Village Part 2. Why? Because um, something very important needed to be addressed. I'm gonna, a friend of mine, not a friend of mine, actually, a relative. We spoke about uh, the May Day episode. And I said, and I have a critique of the, the, twenty, the, the 21st century American left wing politics politically and my number one critique is how they're bogged down in identity politics the little muck and mire and minutiae as opposed to the macro perspective of um economic justice you you get economic justice and you can get past everything but oftentimes the economic injustices occur because of how you look at other people. And it ties into my worthy versus unworthy victims uh, conversation that we had. I think it was episode 80 or 79. Very important episode. We're going to tie that in too. And that person pointed something out to me. They said, June, um, they said, and this, I'm quoting loosely. They said, June, I kind of feel as if you were minimizing the anger and the angst of people out there that are on front street. And that's not like you because you're the first person to say, we don't get to criticize how the voiceless scream and how the voiceless air out their opinions. And I've been, and when that person said that to me, I said, okay, maybe I didn't articulate, you know, my points in the, in that conversation, in the uh, May day conversation clearly enough, but I was listening and they said, you know, because, you know, a lot of people that are speaking on whose life matter or this, that and the third, they're speaking from a particular perspective of things that are going on and et cetera, et cetera. And then we're, we're having those conversations. 
And I was like, yeah, get it, got it, got it. And people that are speaking on trans rights or this right or that right or this one and that one, I said, yes, got it, got it, got it. I said, and my retort was, I said, if you notice, it wasn't my intent to minimize those struggles. It was my intent to show that the power structure benefits from those conversations because it doesn't have to make any fundamental changes. And I said, so I'm the first person to say that the voice of the voiceless is the Molotov cocktail. I know that sounds radical to many of you. The voice of the voiceless is fire. The voice of the voiceless is taking to the streets. And many people who sit on perches can say, oh, why, why are they doing that? When you, from, from, from our comfortable enclaves, our, our comfort zones, we go, why are those people taking to the streets? Why are those people doing that? Why are those people in this so angry? Why didn't they just talk to their representative? They did for months, for years, for decades, for generations. They did. They used whatever voice, whatever equity they had, whether it was unity, whether it was uh, galvanizing their human equity. If they didn't have any money, they used themselves to go and speak to their police, to speak to their councilmen, to speak to the people that were community leaders, to speak to their church leaders and religious leaders, to speak to the political leaders and the people that were campaigning in their neighborhoods. They spoke till they were blue in the face and nothing happened. So eventually, when the voiceless are no longer being heard, they're going to start speaking, dot, 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 louder. So it happens when you're saying something to someone, right? And you notice, you're like, hey, can you stop doing that? And they keep doing it. Hey, can you stop doing that? And they keep doing it. Hey, can you stop doing that? And they keep doing it. Hey, can you stop? I'm done. And they keep doing it. What's going to happen after that? But the people who oftentimes critique movements of people, usually are not victims of that on a macro level. They're not victims of the indignant, see, that those people that are on the ground, that are fighting, that are screaming, that are yelling into cameras, usually you're not a victim of that. So the people that usually critique that are on a, on a different perch and on a different purview. I understand that all too well because I have always, I've experienced certain things in my life growing up in New York City. When I came of age, I came of age during Giuliani's um, regime in New York, eight hellish years. Um, and the only reason why those eight years were hellish was because before that I was, you know, under my mother's thumb to a certain degree. And it's not until Giuliani's administration where I was no longer under my mother's thumb. And when a young black boy is no longer holding his mother's hand, he is an enemy of the state. Does that sound hyperbolic to you? Fine. No problem. Look at how. Um, just go look up stop and frisk and see the 80% failure rate of a policy that was just there to be an occupying army as opposed to an investigative police force. Um, what Giuliani's regime did to me and my history, I mean, the history of how I knew it and research that I did about the world around me, I understood what a police state could feel like because I had tiny inklings and indications of what other people in other countries must have felt like. And even in this country, when the, when the, when the uh, people who identify as black or who are identified as black in this country, especially when you're a male, 
what they must have gone through in segregatory America, what they've gone through in Jim Crow America, what they've gone through in the early, mid to early 20th century and 19th century. Here I am coming of age in the late 20th century and what I had to deal with. And so I was angry and I'm born of immigrant parents, parents who, 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 was were always so paranoid of, of 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 losing their citizenship that if they got a speeding ticket they, they were paying overpaying they would go to the precinct and go this is a 20 dollar ticket can i give you 30 dollars be like no 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 it's fine just 20 dollars will do 25 dollars will do because they were just so grateful to be here they weren't in the habit of demanding equal treatment under the law so when I would go to my parents and my uncles and my aunties who were these proud, hardworking people and say, listen, I'm being treated like, like a, like, like a, I don't know, like a leper out there by, by the state. All they said was, June, don't make waves. June, we can't afford lawyers. June, we can't afford any trouble. That's what I was met with. And here I was, I had to absorb all of that indignancy, all of that disrespect, all of that not being treated fair and equally under the law, being abused by cops, being beat up, this, that, and the third. And then I would see people take to the streets for those same abuses. And I would enter into those uh, 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 protests like, yeah, exactly. And then I would hear things from other people that weren't experiencing that. And they would say things like, wow, there was another way to handle that. Really? And what way is that exactly? When this is something that is sort of embedded into the system that you're in, where the system is actually saying doing this to you is okay, where you have a private prison industrial complex that lobbies Congress and lobbies judges and lobbies politicians to have stricter and harsher laws, stricter and harsher policing for nonviolent felons, because in this country we've treated prison as a real estate industry. Do you know that in America, that private prisons are an actual viable real estate investment? And the only way that that works is if you have many, many prisoners. So you find more and more reasons to arrest. So you have to be you have to accost more people and more men on the street and create a more confrontational armed situation between the state and civilians. That's what I was going through. And that's what many, many people who look like me go through from New York to New Mexico to Texas to California, Chicago, everywhere. But I noticed other groups didn't care, but they didn't care during segregation. They didn't care during the civil rights movement. They were saying, why are those blacks so upset? Why, why, why? There's other ways to handle this, really. Interesting. So I had to explain to this person that I wasn't diminishing the struggles i was saying that there's a big picture that always has to be in the conversation a bigger conversation and that conversation has to be economic justice economic justice and yes many of the injustices occur because whether we want to admit it or not we value different human beings differently we don't like to admit it I've said it before. We don't like to admit it. I said it in unworthy versus worthy victims. We don't like to admit that there are certain humans that we value more than other human beings. It's true. 
I remember that um I had a good friend of well yeah it was a good friend of mine um he was a left leaning academic or so he you know um a liberal left leaning liberal academic and I remember when there was a lot of um, unrest going on in the United States over the police brutality and we're we're dating back maybe five six years and um, this person that I know a good friend of mine is an atheist which is which means he is a a, a a non-believer in you know doesn't doesn't believe in a god so to speak and um there were some things going on on the news and uh he was on uh facebook and he was in an atheist group and for whatever reason that group you know it popped up on my thing because sometimes you can see what your friends are commenting on so I happened to see what he commented on. So I just happened to look. It was an interesting conversation. And um, he said something like, well, what about us atheists and what we go through? And someone in his discussion group said, yeah, you don't see us taking to the streets every time we're discriminated against. Now, these were academic, suburban Anglos from Palm Beach County, Florida. And they were trying to juxtapose the plight of the suburban white atheist with the plight of the young black teen being hyper surveilled in the United States of America. And they were dismissing completely what those kids may be going through. No empathy whatsoever. None. Zero. But I've seen them empathize with other groups that didn't look like the group of teens. And at this particular this particular situation, I think it was the Trayvon Martin situation with George Zimmerman out there in central Florida. And I think this is right around that time as well. And I remember reading that and that started to fray our relationship because I commented on that a little bit. But I remember I didn't say much, but I looked at that and I said, yeah, that is the inhumane way we treat each other where we value what we're going to dismiss what those historically, what that group of people go through in this country and how they've been targeted, marginalized, ostracized, incarcerated, assassinated, exiled. That group has been treated historically in this country. If you look at the people on the left that get disbanded and destroyed the, the, the earliest and the fastest and the swiftest and get the most punitive measures uh, 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 against them taken for their for their for their thoughts and their actions it's the black left so it's the malcolms of the world and the martins and the panthers and the student nonviolent coordinating committees it's been the black left that gets assassinated and incarcerated more than any other group when they speak of the ills that are going on and this this and there are certain groups out there we'll look at people and we'll go eh not in my village. Not in my village. So I want to ask people, who's in your village? And who's in your village says a lot about you. Who's in your village says a lot about you. Who you identify with, who you deem worthy or unworthy, who you value more or less. Reason why I say that is because let's take a country like Haiti, for instance. Haiti is two hours it's a two-hour flight from Florida, two hours off of the United States, a two-hour flight. It's in the Western Hemisphere. And for the better part of three to four decades, Haiti's been considered 
the poorest country in our hemisphere. So explain to me why that a country that is so close in proximity geographically is not close in proximity in the hearts and minds of the average American. It's so close to the average American geographically, but yet so far away in their hearts and minds. Why is that? But yet we can care for people so far away and donate and do this and that and a third. But yet people that are right here in our backyards, eh, yeah, you know, it's as if to say there's certain groups that we expect these things to happen to them. That plight and travails and obstacles and challenges and famine, they deserve the famine or famine is attributed to them and other people deserve the feast. And when the people who have historically been able to feast start to receive famine or start to experience famine, then you're up in arms. But the people who've historically been famined, we don't go, hey, what's, what's going on? What are we doing about those conditions? Let's take El Salvador, for instance. El Salvador, it's off the coast of, it's in Central America. On the Pacific coast. Well, yeah, it takes up both coasts. But uh, let's take El Salvador, for instance, right? In Central America. It's about a three-hour flight from Texas. In March of this year, 2022, they experienced 62 murders in one Saturday. That weekend, they had 87 murders. And those 87 murders were attributed to two gangs, the MS-13 gang and I think it was the Barrio 18 gang. Gang, gang war. Almost 100 people murdered, primarily men and boys murdered in this gang war. A gang war that is precipitated by what? Gang war that's precipitated by the drug, uh, 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 drug consumption. These are drug gangs because most of them are trying to corner markets on what? Drugs going to the United States because we are the biggest, largest consumer of narcotics on earth. We make up 5% of the world's population, but yet we consume one third of the world's narcotics. So we, for every single last man, woman, and child that's dying in so-called drug wars, understand that our consumption leads to these murders in places where these people are getting killed. And did you get a blip of that on your news? Did your legacy media tell you about it? Is this place here, tiny old, little old me? Am I the first time you're hearing that? And if that's the case, then why? Because these people end up on your borders. These people, the, the, the mothers of these boys that are trying to make sure that their kid, that are, that are looking to prevent their children from entering into gangs and being recruited for gangs, they're doing everything in their power to send these kids to the United States where they can be safe. The very same country that is consuming the drugs that, are, uh, uh, that these kids are dying over. Okay, so you have nine, 10, 11 year old boys with M16s in their hands. Did you know that? And how much does how much do you care? Do you have enough empathy? Do you have an equal amount of empathy to hand out to those people as we have to people, let's say someplace else? Because we know what's dominating the news right now. I don't have to go into detail and belabor the point of UK. I'm sorry, Ukraine and Russia and the US and that dynamic. I went I went through that over two, three, I think maybe four episodes. So if you're a new listener 
to this conversation. If you're new to the conversation, go back a couple of episodes and look at my US v Ukraine, U USA, Russia, Ukraine um, um, conversations and look at the his historicity as to why we look at Russia one way or the Ukraine one way and um, how they may view us and how we've been indoctrinated to believe who's a worthy or unworthy victim. And then I sort of concluded that with the unworthy, unworthy victim, worthy, unworthy victim um, episode. But that's important because I'm not looking to sit here as some sort of example of equal empathy, but to a degree I do. When I thought about that in El Salvador, I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? MS-13? I've been hearing about those guys since I was a kid. MS-13 is in New York City, in Queens. I grew up in Queens, New York, and I remember in Bayside and parts of Flushing, there was the MS-13 gang. This goes back three plus decades. Are you listening to me, guys? Three plus decades I've been hearing about the MS-13 gang. You know what's interesting about that? It's funny how... Um, Political activists on the left, real vanguard activists on the left, they get in incarcerated and assassinated. You know, Black Panther's gone. Uh, Southern Christian Leadership Committee gone. Uh, the the, um, uh, uh, the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee gone. Thanks to the FBI. Thanks to counterintelligence programs. Thanks to J. Edgar Hoover. But gangs, bloods, crips. GDs, Gangster Disciples, Vice Lords, this one, that one. Oh, they seem to just flourish. MS-13, they seem to flourish. Isn't that interesting? We'll get into that another time. But, and the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this up is because I'm actually almost speaking directly to that person that I was having a conversation with. Because I remember um, I was listening to New York radio which I seldom do. I was living in New York at the time, and there's a DJ. I won't mention his name. He's on the radio. He's actually from my hometown. As a matter, not only is he from Queens, he's from my area in Queens. Not only is he from my area in Queens, he's probably about he lived he lived six blocks away from the home I grew up in. I you know we. I'm not saying traveled in the same circles, but we knew many of the same people as is going to occur. And he's a very prominent DJ on New York radio till today. And he said something several years ago and it bothered me and it sounded a lot like. And this is interesting because here's a guy who's from my neighborhood, identifies as black or is identified as black by the power structure and the state apparatus such as it is. He sounded eerily similar to my suburban Anglo atheist friend from Palm Beach. He was on the radio and he said, yeah, you know, people out in the streets and, you know, they're blocking traffic and they're blah, blah, blah. And they're doing all of this stuff. And I got to take my kid to private school. And I'm wondering, what are they doing this for? And I remember I was in my car driving and I literally looked at my radio. And I just I was in disbelief. I said, dude, I would expect that frame of thought from someone who hadn't experienced what we experienced because he's in my age group too so he came of age too during Giuliani's regime and his people's experienced what I was experiencing he experienced under that that regime what I experienced but for him to say that just lets you know that someone can look like you and identify and still be okay with the machinations of how things are because now he's in a multi-millionaire class where he is no longer just identified as a black 
male, underclass, under suspicion, socioeconomically oppressed, repressed, suppressed. He's a millionaire and he's a celebrity. That's another conversation he's a part of. He's part of the 1%. He makes high six, seven figures per annum. He's recognized. He lives in an area where he's, he can get pulled over and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, it's such and such. He can go to the precinct, something that I did actually. He can go to the precinct and be like, hey, listen, um, I live in this neighborhood now. Uh, I drive several uh, $100,000 cars and some of my cars are not just worth 100000 They're worth several hundred thousand. Um, here they are. I'd like to not be accosted and stopped and surveilled because I just dealing with an armed response to a traffic stop is not something I want to be a part of. So do that. I actually did that. I moved into a very affluent neighborhood and I went directly to the police department immediately and gave them my information. I said, I take long walks at night. I don't want to be bothered because I'm not going to acquiesce and I'm not going to comply to any requests of seeing my ID after today. So if you want to take a picture of me, put it on your wall and put, leave them alone, do what you have to do. Because when I'm going on my walks and I'm going through my thoughts, I'm going through my rants and revelations in my mind, I do not want to be disturbed. There is a do not disturb sign. And granted, oftentimes it's going to be a 1 a.m. walk, a 10 p.m. walk, a 1 a.m. walk. I did that. And I've done that in two separate neighborhoods in Palm Beach County, Florida. Just to preempt because I was accosted one time by police just walking and minding my business with my headphones on, taking a walk around midnight through, through my neighborhood. And the cop hit me with the standard, uh, we got a call or I fit the description. Yeah, right. I said, I'd like to hear that call, please. No, you will not get my ID. So you know what I did? I called his supervising officer. I made an appointment with that supervising officer. I went to the to the precinct and I spoke in front of every single cop with an earshot and I raised my voice to let them know I walk I mind my business I'm law abiding I pay my taxes I make money I am allowed to walk around whenever I choose to as long as I'm not as long as I'm not trespassing but I pay my rent my name is on the lease you do not have the right to just decide that I'm an issue make a u-turn no you don't you don't and so i did that and they looked at me and they they, they said this has never happened before I, said, I don't care if it's, i'm not here to set precedence i'm just letting you know what how i do things and so when that dj was on the radio speaking about they're getting in the way of my car my i'm driving in my mclaren taking my kid to a twenty thousand dollar a year public school and and these people are stopping traffic that's the voiceless that's the people that are saying no one's listening. So it seems as if no one cares and we're tired. So it seems as if the only time you guys care is when we disrupt the normative comings and goings. It's like when Martin Luther King wanted to have his poor people's march on Washington and he wanted to disrupt the everyday machinations of the world because no matter what's going on in these poor, downtrodden, voiceless areas, the world moves on and the world moves forward. Regardless, because those people are considered unworthy victims. You and I or many out there consider certain groups you value one set of human beings over another. 
You value one set of human beings over another. You let your legacy media, it's your own, oftentimes it's our own apathy that leads to the conditions that occur in our known universe. It's us. It's not the cops. It's not the robbers. It's not the politicians. It's not the deep state. It's you, you, and I, and I, and I. You understand? Our apathy. You don't know about those 87 murders that occurred. Those were kids. Many of them weren't gang members. Many of them were forcibly recruited into gangs. Many of those people are, 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 are those boys, or, or those gang leaders are empowered due to the fact that they're selling illegal contraband substances to the United States. We're empowering them to go into some poor farmer's home and say, we want your kid. Your boy, you have a boy. It's, we're, we're taking him with us. And that mother's going, I, 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 no, that's my only son or that's my son's. No, doesn't matter. We need more. We need more amongst our rank and file. We have. And guess what? That we're contributing to that. Uh, almost 100 bodies in, in, in a two day span. This country's at war with itself. And we're one of the contributors to that. Where are where are we? Where are we on that? How do you make how does that make you feel? So for me, when I think of that, and I'm, when I was talking to my to my cousin, I said, listen, I'm not minimizing anything. I'm saying that the idea is economic justice. I'm saying that we're treating everyone differently. This is true. Right now, we're getting bogged down in who identifies as what. But we can always in the in the great Karl Marx, Dr. Marx, air Dr. Marx once said, you can break it down into economic classes in capital and labor and the power and the powerless. And for those to who knows how to leverage what power they actually do have. Because the real conversation is how much money are you going to allow in your political system where now the moneyed class is now overtaking um you have 300 million people, but now you have an economic class that's exploited you to the point where you have wages that have been stagnant for 40 years where they can donate $300 million because your wage has been stagnant for 40 years and they've been making money hand over fist off of your labor. They've been working you harder, taxing you longer, taxing you financially and physically. And guess what? So when it's time for you to give your little one man, one vote, one woman, one vote, guess what? Is your 300 million people going to actually over leverage the 300 million dollars? Hmm. What are you doing to, 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 to counteract and counterbalance the economic conversation? What are you doing? What's the counter? Because the more we speak about, oh, yes, we're, we're going to hire June. We're going to elect June to this office because we need a black face. Yeah, he's articulate, he's intelligent, he's, he's got a college degree, and, um, you know, if we hoist him and put him at the forefront of, um, it'll look like that we're becoming a kinder, gentler, more inclusive, more diverse, more equitable government, an equitable country, an equitable company. Meanwhile, the same exploitative practices persist, so you put black brown faces, female faces, 
different genders or gender identifiers. You put them out in front street as indicators that there is more diversity, more inclusivity, more equity. Meanwhile, the same uh, uh, mediocre practices and exploitative practices still exist. So that's what I was trying to explain that, yes, keep speaking about these things, identity politics, keep speaking about them, get them out there. However, however, do not lose sight of the economic conversation because the powers that be, whether they be on the left, whether they be on the right, the paymasters, they all win when you're bogged down into these these woke conversations, these these dogmas, these the cancel culture where most of the millennials can't truly argue the points that they're making because they've 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 abandoned the traditions of the of the of the of the of the, of the traditional left and the conversations of the traditional left. So many millennials are getting stumped on counters that have already been mastered from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But they haven't done their homework and they haven't done their research and they're doing themselves in these movements that they've started a great disservice. And oftentimes these movements are actually being funded by the power structure because the power structure is like, we love these distractions. This is not a true disruption. You're making noise and you're talking loud, but because what you're saying doesn't hit to the root of what's going on, hey, we'll let you talk loud and we'll let the left and the right and everyone else in between chime in and argue about how you should do things and your method of operation and blah, 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 and et cetera, et cetera, and, 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 and this, that, and the third, and we love it. And they get to sit back and get their ratings up and um, fear monger. Oh, these groups of people are outside stealing microwaves and PS2s and et cetera, et cetera. And everyone gets to chime in as to and quarterback protest. Meanwhile, you have many, many factions behind the scenes that are actually funding a lot of these what you, what you may consider disruptive movements. There's not one. And listen to me now. I've studied many of the movements that that are out right now, who matters and who doesn't. There's not one of these movements that is worth its salt. Not one of them. Not one. Not one of them are moving the needle, tr truly moving the needle in the direction of economic justice for the worker. We're speaking about this because it's in, it's in, it's in keeping and consistent with the May Day mandate, International Workers Day. Not one of these movements that is out there on front street right now is truthfully speaking on behalf of economic justice and the people are not articulate and they're not learned enough to even speak on the subject. They're either ignorant to it, they're compromised because of who's funding the movement. They could be a weapon of mass distraction for all you know. I'm not going to speak on any movements specifically, but there's one movement in particular that has over eight figures worth of money that no one wants to claim. Now, usually grassroots movements don't have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollars in their coffers. That sounds like a political campaign, doesn't it? That sounds like something that a Democratic or Republican candidate would have in their coffers. Meanwhile, you have these so-called matters movements that have these millions and millions of dollars. And the people on the ground have been complaining, saying that money isn't going to the victims of the very same crimes or issues that brought these particular groups to prominence to begin with. Whoa, do you smell a rat? I do. I know where the rat is. But if you care enough, I'll let you do the research. That's not what I'm going to do.
but Harry Truman said, if you get rich in politics, you're a crook. I'm going to say, if you get rich being an activist, you're a crook and you're not an activist. You're a traitor to the cause that you're espousing. You don't get rich being an activist, period. You don't get movie deals. You don't get, you don't get, you don't get to speak. You don't speak vitriol and truth to power on behalf of the powerless. Then all of a sudden get, get included into the power structure, absorbed into the power structure, and then get screenwriter deals. And you own million dollar homes in the greater Atlanta and Georgia area and have a real estate portfolio. That doesn't happen. When you're on the ground with the people, you don't get, you don't get the gated community. That's the trade-off. That's the trade-off. If you're truly amongst the people, you suffer the people's fate. Sorry. Even if you represent the greatest among them, the most learned among them, you suffer the people's fate. That's why MLK got a bullet to the chest. That's why Malcolm got bullet shotgun to the chest. That's why the Panthers ended up being incarcerated, assassinated, marginalized, ostracized, and exiled. Because when you speak on behalf of the people, you suffer the people's fate. If I see you profiting off of your propaganda, then I go, up. we have the great compromiser. You, sir, you, madam, are not authentic. It's, it's a simple rubric. And I can go back to the, in this country, at least in this country from the, I don't know, 1800s till now and give you a timeline. So I'm asking you guys, again, who's in your village? <clears throat> because until we're able to treat everyone humanely, one, look at each other humanely, and then say, okay, if this is happening in Ecuador, hap what's happening in Ecuador is in El Salvador, I'm sorry, is just as heart-wrenching for me as what's going on in the Ukraine. Ah, what's going on in Haiti hurts me as much as what's going on in Venezuela. Hurts me as much as what goes on in parts of Mexico and Guatemala and Ethiopia, which is going through, I mean, what Ethiopia is going through right now, look it up. All of that Equally, even though I am of Haitian descent, my mom and my dad are both from Haiti. And what I feel for the Haitian people, what I feel when I go visit Haiti for Haitian food, music, culture, history, it's a part of me. But when I see what's going on in El Salvador, that I can't, I can't, my brain goes, oh my gosh. When I think about what's going on in, in Ukraine, the Ukrainian people and what they have to go through. And then, and here's the rub. And I'm also 100% against sanctions and financial, financial sanctions that I know that are going to disproportionately adversely affect Russian citizens. I don't believe in sanctions because sanctions hurt the people on the ground more than anything else. You try to starve the people to a point where um, they turn on their government. So you turn them into a hungry pack of dogs. I find that to be inhumane as well. So I can sympathize as much as I can and be as heartfelt for what's going on in, the, in Ukraine and feel just as sympathetic and empathetic to what's going on with the Russian people because they will be sanctioned. The same way I feel for the Persian people and the Iranian people for how they were sanctioned. The same way I feel for the Cuban people and how they've been sanctioned. You can feel however you want to feel about a government. 
But when you hear people throw words like sanction around, hmm, no one ever sanctioned the United States for how it treated its Chinese through its Chinese Exclusion Act or when it had Japanese internment camps or when it had Jim Crow America or segregatory America. Imagine all of you out there in the suburbs now couldn't find things on your shelves because the world shut you out because of what your government was doing to a particular sect of people. How would you feel about that? You'd be saying, that ain't me. That's not me. I, 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 did, I didn't do that. But then the world decided, or another or superpower decided, well, you voted for those people that are doing those things. So we're letting you know that if you still want to get gasoline, if you still want to have electricity, if you still want to have bread on your shelves, if you don't want to starve, then you got to do such and such and such and such. Really? But what if the power structure that's involved, they have more money and more resources and more everything and they're in power. What does that have to do with us and, they, and the world and, their, and these apparatuses and these organizations, these world global organizations just shrug their shoulders and go whelp while you starve. And in your mind, you're like, I haven't discriminated against anybody. I just go to work and come home. I just take my kids to school. I, I, you know, I, I, and now I can't put gas in the car. I can't afford. My job is closed down because my job was, you know, is no, we no longer have a credit rating uh, on the international market. So they had to downsize me. And now my family is starving. Yeah, that, that's what happens. Are you okay with that? Because of all of the atrocities that, has been, that have been um, committed, in the name of democracy and United States freedom, justice, and equality, there hasn't been one pow-pow, not one slap on the wrist, not one punitive measure. Can any have these countries taken against what goes on here? The Central American and South American governments haven't said to the United States, hey, listen, man, you guys have to do something about your drug consumption because it's killing us. You think you're going through overdoses? You think you're going through addictions and overdoses and suicides? One country of 6 million people lost 87 citizens in two days vis-a-vis -vis murders and gang wars because of our consumption of, of narcos. That's the facts. So these are people in our village, whether you want them to be or not, whether you deem them worthy or not whether you deem them valuable or not. These are people in our village, in our hemisphere, two to three hours away from us on a plane. You watch one episode, one, you watch Iron Man 1, and it's by the time Iron Man 1, by the time the credits roll, you're already in these countries. Okay? You watch a couple of episodes of your favorite show on a tablet, and guess what? Guess what? You're already in these countries. So why are they so close to us proximally, geographically, but yet so far away from us in our hearts and minds, ideologically? Where's the divide? Why is there a divide? That's a question for each and every last one of us. We have to reflect on that. Why we have the knee-jerk response to, oh my God, I can't believe that's happening there. That's so sad. We're so invested over here. It, it, it could be 8,000 miles away. But yet, something that's going on 1,100 miles away, a two-hour flight as opposed to a 12-hour flight or a 10-hour flight, we're, 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 we're sympathizing more. And I'm not saying that this is supposed to be a proximal thing, but I'm just, I'm just asking. 
people that are right here, two hours. You can drive to El Salvador from Texas. You can drive. You can take go down through Mexico. I mean, I don't know if it's the most ideal trip you want to take, but I'm just saying it's possible to drive to the, some of the places that I'm mentioning that are going through horrific conditions. Venezuela has six million displaced people. Six million people displaced men, women, and children. Where are we on that? I'm going to say it again, and the reason why I'm saying it is I want to ask that question, who's in our village? So when I was speaking about economic justice, I'm speaking about things, and you know, and, uh, you know, I had a friend of mine talk to me about climate change. I'm very, no pun intended, I'm very cool on the subject of climate change. I'm barely lukewarm on the subject of climate change. I had an episode on it, if you want to look back. And I think I said in that episode, until human nature changes, we're not going to be able to change what Mother Nature's doing. We can't treat each other humanely. We treat each other so inhumanely that the idea of us being able to curtail the effects of climate change and the abstractions of dealing with the climate and our consumption. We've been hearing about climate change since I was a kid and ozone layer and aerosol cans and sprays. And then, then you had former vice president of the United States, Al Gore, do his inconvenient truth, which was a very stark documentary with all types of bells and whistles and PowerPoints and graphics. But yet Americans still purchase more SUVs than anybody. We're actually eliminating the sedan. <laughs> We're eliminating the car. We're eliminating the, 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 the coupe and the cars because we want bigger engines. We want big. We want to consume more. It, it's more material to make these cars. You do realize that, right? It's a bigger car. means it's going to burn more. It's going to be heavier. It takes more stuff. You have to mine and create and harvest more things and materials to actually make this thing. Hmm? I was reading something one time, and, and this is very, very important. This is very important. I want to say when I first started working, when I was uh, hanging out in mixed company, Mixed company is a polite way of saying that I was hanging out with people that weren't, that didn't look like me. Or who didn't identify as colored in any way, shape, or form. Non-people of color. And I remember the conversation for a couple of decades has always been the people in the third world are having too many babies. Yeah, you know, we don't have enough resources and things to feed all of the people on the planet. And invariably... These non-colored people were always directing their ire and that conversation towards colored countries, primarily Africa. So they would say, yeah, you know, African, you know, they have all these babies and everything and we don't have the resources to uh, uh, feed these people or the resources to, you know, that these people consume and et cetera, et cetera. And I always had an issue with that. The reason why I had an issue with that is because most of sub-Saharan Africa uh, doesn't use electricity, doesn't use any resources. And most of the world's resources are being used by what? The West. The United States uses more resources than any other country on earth outside of China. China right now, because China historically has not, but as of now, China's like number one and we're number two, or we're tied, we go back and forth. That's who uses the most resources. So I remember I used to always say, wow, these eugenics people that want to populate, control the population always invariably are, Speaking about colored countries, it's, it's almost something that is in, 
innate in their genetic mode or the, how they've been socialized, all those colored people having so many babies. And I used to hear that from many, many sects. I've heard it in Florida. I've heard it when I was hanging out in Hawaii. And I heard it from Australians, Anglo-Australians. I've heard it from the British. I've heard it from South Africans, which is the, 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 the indigenous or the, or the Dutch, the Dutch Africans. And I've always heard, oh, everybody else is having oh, these, you know, they have so many babies and there's not enough contraception. And there are plenty of reasons why to curtail um, maybe third world um, 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 birth rates. That's not one of them. It's not because of energy resource. It's because maybe they don't have enough money to feed the children, maybe because of the, uh, the, uh, the poor infrastructure. And until the infrastructure can can uh, can sustain and withstand their infrastructure, hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. But no one's talking about that. No one's saying, oh, my gosh, this woman had seven babies and she lost three. What a tragedy. We need more hospitals. We need more uh, 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 maternity care. We need more advanced medicine over there. No, that's not what they're saying. They're saying you just need to stop because you're taking our resources. Meanwhile, the world such as it is, industrial Europe and industrial America owes all of its advancements to the resources that they've pillaged and stolen from Africa. And this next era of this green revolution, where you have all these tree huggers and climate change activists that are speaking about what we need to do to curtail, curtail, and we need to use more uh, green energy, and we need to use microchips as opposed to gas. And now we have the Elon Musk has his Tesla that uses more. Mi we have more computerized vehicles. And these computerized vehicles with these screens, they need to use coltan. They need to use coltan, which is found in the Congo. 80% of the world's metals for your flat screens and your microchips come from Africa. So I can't have a conversation about climate change until we decide to change how we deal with Africa. Until the world and the Western world is ready to deal with Africa as a world superpower and to deal with it and its resources equitably. I don't want to have a conversation about climate change. I cannot have a conversation about climate change because the conversation is never about, well, we're getting all of our resources now. So the first advancement of the Western world, whether it be Europe and Africa, all came, uh, Europe and the United States, all came from Africa. The Greeks and the Romans learned how to read and write and got all of their religions from Africa. You learned your mathematics all from the Africa and the Middle East. You, the, the Industrial Revolution spurned by all the resources in Africa, Europe subsidized by African resources. And it's the reason why Africa looks the way it looks right now, because you didn't deal with them equitably. It was an equitable trade. The, the European got off of a plane, went into Africa, got off of a boat and said, mine, like a three year old, taking the ball away from another three year old. Like, no, I'm not sharing mine, mine. Why? Because the idea of having Africa be on the world stage and having leverage and an and equal, equitable contribution to the world affairs was not what it was supposed to be it's supposed to be a servile state the most resource rich continent on earth is not supposed to be a place where you're supposed to having to donate and give aid to but look at your history as to why so now the next advancement outside of the industrial revolution is now what the 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 electronic revolution the technological revolution spurned by microchips and microprocessors and metal that doesn't heat up so you can have your equipment in, in, for, for decades. All of these metals are coming from where? Question mark, dot, dot, dot. From Africa. 
but I'm not hearing any conversation from these climate change tree huggers about how we're going to humanely deal with the continent that is providing the majority of the resources that we're going to need to keep this country cool. To keep us from having to deal with mass flooding and, 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 and climate refugees where certain areas are going to be underwater and those people are going to have to find different places to go. And guess what? The irony of water is when your place is underwater, you have less water. If your wells are flooded because of, of, of rising water tides, that means you don't have water to feed yourself. You cannot drink salt water. So your crops are flooded, your land is flooded, your wells and your lakes and your rivers are flooded. Guess what happens? You don't actually have water. So people have to leave now, leave their homes, uh, finding a, 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 a refuge, higher places to live above sea levels, above water levels. With all of that talk, no one's talking about, yeah, we're going to deal with the fact that we have child soldiers that have their hands and feet chopped off, that we have polluted rivers and streams and we've displaced tens of millions of people in Africa. We've created famine classes because multinational global corporations that we all gush at, all these tech gurus that we like to hashtag and we like to listen to their TED Talks and we look at their memes, such and such once said, do we care that our technological and our green revolution is going to be spurned by more exploitation of the continent of Africa? Do we care? Is Africa in our village? Is Africa in our village? Who is in your village? Is Africa in our village? Just saying. So me personally, I have a couple of friends of mine that are very much, you know, uh, climate changers and conservationists. And uh, and I say to them, yeah, yeah. Do I believe in the science? Absolutely. I am not a climate change denier. Do I believe in the science? Oh, yeah. Oh, we're in trouble. Based on the science and as I've interpreted and as it's been given to me, I it's in my humble opinion, we're in deep dookie when it comes to climate change. But I'm not willing to have the conversation until we start having a humane conversation about how we're dealing with Africa. Because all of these microchips and this electric solar panel revolution, all of those materials are coming from that country. So if that country doesn't get rich off of European countries and Western nations being able to live above sea level, because guess who's going to deal with climate change and have the most adverse effects to climate change? It's those poor people in Africa on the ground that have to live and have to deal with all of these conditions and these adverse inclement weather conditions that are going to be exacerbated through climate change that are going to happen more often and be more severe due to climate change. Those people are going to be the ones dealing with it. And they have all the resources. They're providing it for the whole world to get advanced, to fortify their homes and buildings and cars and roadways. So when the waters and the tornadoes and the hurricanes and everything gets more severe, you're able to withstand. Those people are going to bear the brunt. And no one's having that conversation. All of the people, and there's that girl, I can't remember her name, Von Thurnberg, I can't remember her name, great girl. And she's very articulate in speaking truth to power about climate change, and I applaud her. And um, she's, she's extremely formidable. And in, in, in her, in her uh, discourse, I shrugged my shoulders. I was like, oh, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, sounds good. Until we start dealing with each other humanely, I cannot think of it abstraction. We're not going to be able to move the needle on Mother Nature. 
if we're still going to treat Africa as if, hey, we go there, take their resources and bounce with no thought process as to how we're going to deal with that. You know, Africa, Africa's this is our leading. This is this is the most resource rich continent on Earth. We get our copper, our timber, our rubber, our cocoa, our diamonds, our gold, our metals, our our cobalt, our coltan. Everything comes from there. So what are we doing about that? Are we going to create a new business model and a new way of thinking? Economic justice. Economic justice. Back to that. <laughs> there we go again. So you can talk all this climate and this. If we're using this model, such as it is, doesn't matter. If we haven't evolved as human beings to the point where we can have Equal empathy? Who cares? Does it matter? Keep buying your SUVs. Keep throwing your styrofoam plastics into the beach and rivers and streams. Doesn't matter because that's what we're doing to each other. We're throwing each other into rivers and streams. That's what we do to each other. So why would we treat Mother Nature any different than we treat each other? We're not going to treat Earth Mother different than we treat each other. Do we care about the babies that are dying and, 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 and our child soldiers and kids that are six years old working in Colton mines and dying? Do we care about the murders in El Salvador? Do we care about the, the 30,000, 40,000 people that were at the Mexican, U.S.-Mexico border? that were escaping some of the worst conditions, conditions that you can't even fathom because most Americans have not been in anything remotely similar to what goes on in the third world. I know parts of the third world because I visit the poor, allegedly the poorest country in our hemisphere as it's been labeled. You know, that's its brand. Um, I visited there several times. And I've been to the, some of the poorest parts of Haiti and some of the most wealthiest parts of Haiti. What you consider a ghetto in America <laughs> with your running water and your subsidized housing and your paved roadways and your electricity that doesn't go off and your sanitation. Wait, you have a garbage truck? You mean people come and take your garbage? You don't have to burn it? You don't have to throw it out of your window and have the stench of everything that, you, that left your house and your toilet right outside your window? Really? And that's the ghetto? Wow. Yeah, but meanwhile, two hours south, you got to throw that garbage in your refuse right outside your window in some filthy canal. I've seen it. I have certain family members that were living like that. I've seen it. I've experienced it firsthand. It wasn't just on some sort of third world tour where I was going there to help out a little bit. No, that's that's when I go visit everyone. And I, I lived there. I stayed nights. And that's the smell. And it's a smell when you smell it for the first time. The burning of garbage and food and human waste all together in a canal where every other person in that shanty, hundreds of people are dumping their garbage there because there is no such thing as a sanitation department. There's no infrastructure. It's a smell that you cannot easily get rid of in your mind. It becomes part of your smemory. Once you smell that, you never get rid of it. You never forget what that smell is. And I'm telling you that in the United States, you don't know that. You don't have an idea. But you hear about it and you see parts of it on the news. How much do you empathize? Right? 
So I kind of covered a whole lot of things there because I wanted to speak to my friend directly as to, yes, I, I am 100 percent um, a person who takes to the streets. I know that fire is the language of the voiceless after you've spoken and spoken and spoken at nauseam. That's not the point that I was looking to make. If I, if I didn't make my point uh, accurately enough, I align with those people who, who decide that, oh, yeah, enough is enough. But then I say to many, many people, you take to the streets, you fight, you fight, you fight. And then the people right now in 2022, with as much information as they have at their disposal, the conversation is economic. I, all I'm saying is that the powers that profit, the profiteers profit off of the conversation being mired as to who gets to use what bathroom. And are we going to cancel Dave Chappelle? And they they love it because the conversation doesn't get to the root. The legacy media doesn't speak about that because the legacy media is a multi global, multinational, multi billion dollar corporations. They don't want the conversation to go into the machinations of how how, how wealth is dispersed. They don't want that conversation to be the conversation. They don't, they'll allow it to be the conversation on the margins, have a quick two minute conversation about it. But then let's move on. Let's move on to the salacious, to the to the <clears throat> to the, uh, the the smaller conversation. Let's get mired in that. That's what they it it, it 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 benefits. They profit off of that. So they profit off of oh men and women. Oh the the, the family is this. Uh, the women are out there in the workplace, and now who's raising the babies? And men are from Mars, and women are from Venus, and. And this one may have or may or may not have a penis. And does that make you a man or does this make you a woman? And if you give birth, oh, yeah. Ooh, those conversations, the more time you spend on that, the less time you think about the bottom line, about how economic justice is being dispersed. Meanwhile, that's all the companies and all your multinational, all of your businesses, all of the true business property class and the hundreds of millions and the billions and the old families that's all they think about. They spend hundreds of thousands of millions and tens of millions of dollars, billions of dollars a year trying to influence elections. Who gets elected? What gets reported and how? To narrow the scope and the perspective of the conversation so we don't have that broader conversation. So everything turns into theater. Everything is salacious. Everything is emotionally based. Meanwhile, they're the ones who control. They're the ones saying, yeah, 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 let's have them all because um, the more you use your emotions, the less you use your intellect. So I, we need the fight or flight. We need them to use their fear response and their anger response and their trigger response because that's going to lower their IQ points. The more they're triggered, the more they're going to be prone and susceptible to straw man attacks and ad hominem attacks. And they're not going to get to the deeper issues that are truly, truly plaguing them. That was my point. If, if I didn't make that point clearly enough, my apologies, but that was my point. And that's why when I speak about climate change and I hear about this and that and the third, I go, yeah, I'm not willing to have that conversation until we have the conversation about Africa. That's fair. If, if, I, were, if I were someone, if a, if a climate changer says, well, June, you know, you know, you should, maybe you shouldn't drive a, a diesel Mercedes. Why not? Because of the earth. Huh, the earth, really? Okay. Mm. June, maybe you shouldn't think about getting a G-Wagon.
because it's a V8 engine. And really? So I'm not going to get my Porsche 996 because of the Earth? Hmm. Really? Is that what you think? No. I'm going to get it. <clears throat> I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it and I'm going to burn, baby, be burn. I'm going to burn, baby, burn. I'll get solar panels and things like that. If it benefits me to do so, I'll do so. If people go, well, you know, you're, you're only exacerbating the conditions that are going on. And oh, I am now. Oh, really? And, I'll, and I'll, all I'll do is I'll point to the lack of empathy that's being showed to these groups of people all over the world before someone calls me the villain. You know what I mean? So, so pardon me if I go, you know. <laughs> you know, um, you can hold that. So who's in your village? Who's in your village? Are we are we equitably dispersing empathy? Are we valuing people equally? A lot of the conversations that are occurring right now in identity politics, they're looking to converse about that. Are you dealing with me equitably? And what does that look like? So I say to those people, forget about being the first one hired and setting those precedents. Be the first one to change the game. Don't just be a participant in the game, how it's being played. Be someone that's looking to change the rules of engagement, fundamentally changing the X's and O's and the modus operandi. Don't just be a participant. Don't just knock on the door and trying to beat in the door and trying to integrate into a burning house. What are the changes we're looking to make? Economic justice. Are we putting that at the forefront? Do you know how to speak the language of economic justice if you're out there? Reason why I'm asking that question is there's a couple of people who listen to me who have been on the front lines over the last couple of years. They've been on TV. They've been um, um, there are clips of them at certain rallies and, and I've heard their talking points and we've had long drawn out conversations and my millennial conversation about millennials who are your giants was the introduction to that conversation about you speaking to the people that are on the ground now and what I'm not telling you what to be mad at I'm just introducing conversations I'm introducing an idea and perspectives that the people you're really trying to speak to actually profit from the conversation solely being or specifically being about these identity politics. They win. The people that you're looking to get to change how they do things, they win. This doesn't move their needle not one bit. They're willing to put your hashtag up on their websites and on their hardwood floors at the basketball games and willing to talk about it during the NFL games. They're willing to talk about it in commercials. We strive for diversity, equity, inclusion, blah, blah, blah. They're going to put all that. We stand against racism. We stand. They're going to put all that. We're going to have a, a such and such collection on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to do all of that. Placate. Placate, placate, mm -hmm. give you a first black this and a first gender fluid this to win an Emmy, this, that, and the third. Yeah, placate, placate, placate. Meanwhile, you know, when, 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 when I notice colored people being so happy about getting Emmys and Oscars, I'm like, hey, have you seen Nollywood lately? In Nigeria, their version of Hollywood. Have you seen Bollywood lately? They own the method of distribution. An operation. They're not just looking for pats on the head and affirmations. They're not looking for affirmation. They own the compensation, the routing of the money, 
the ownership. They own the intellectual property. So all of this Oscars so white is nonsense to me, someone such as myself, because I believe in ownership. I believe in give yourself your award, create your award, create your own award show. You have enough money. You have if you if you put all of the. No. So this is what I'm talking about. Economic justice. You start thinking like an owner. If you start owning your ship. Then you get to change the direction of the ship that you own. If you're the captain, you change the coordinates, you change the crew, you get to change everything. But if you just want to be a crew member and the ship is just going to go on the way it goes on, then and if that's all you want, then this is you're going to continue to get these same results. So I'm saying that one of the first things is economic justice and and economic justice. The origins of economic justice comes from empathy. Tied into who do you value? How do you value them? Why did you put them on this varying scale? Who was a worthy or unworthy victim? Whose trials and travails do you dismiss? And whose do you entertain and empathize and align with? The world is how it is because we made it this way. I will not be one of these people out here talking about, oh, yeah, it's the Illuminati and they're burning Indian skulls and Geronimo skulls and Harvard's blah, 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 skull and bones. Stop it. Even if all of that is true, fine. I'll entertain all of it. Deep state, this one, rituals, this one's, this one, that one. Oh, yeah, they're eating babies, fetuses, and etc. to stay young. That's why Queen Elizabeth is 800 years old and Hillary Clinton is 9,000 years old. Let's say all of that is true. That, that still doesn't change how I've been, how I've experienced life in rank and file America, in rank and file Europe, where when I lived in Hawaii, the people I spoke to on the ground and how they view the world. It hasn't changed that. It's like George, the great George, the late great George Carlin once said, our comedians, I'm sorry, our politicians do not enter into our lives from some parallel universal membrane and then all of a sudden rule over or preside over us. They come from our neighborhoods. They come from our churches. They come from our schools, our colleges and universities. They're from us. So you don't like a Trump or a Biden or a, or a Donald or, or, or I'm sorry, or a Barack or a Clinton or, or a Bush one or two or a Nixon or a Putin or a Zelensky. Oh, they, they come from us. In a democracy, you get the government you deserve. You get the society. When you, w w This is one of the freest places to live on earth. If you don't like how it looks, if you don't like our method of distribution, um, our economic distribution, how wealth is dispersed, how, how we deal with others in, in, in close proximity to us, then, then look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. What, what have you done to change it between your ears? All change happens between the ears first before we can change anything between the lines. Before we can change the lies and change the truths, we have to change the truth that we believe. How are we treating each other? How we view each other? How we've been told to view each other? All of these things. How we've been socialized. Our mom and dad, they could have been wrong. Our grandpa and grandma could have been wrong. Our priest, rabbi, imam could have been wrong. Our teachers, principals, um, civic leaders could have been wrong. Hey, are you willing to go out there and say we need to do things differently? Do you think we do? Have you asked yourself why you empathize so much with this group and not that one? 
I'm not, no one is a villain. I'm just saying we're all culpable. If we don't like the world we live in, we're accountable. So I'm, when, I'm, when I do these talks, I don't want it to sound like I'm sitting on some perch lecturing. I say we oftentimes in this. We, I'm in this too. I'm in this too. We have to point the finger at ourselves. We can't draw that. We're projecting when we scream at our politicians. We're projecting when we speak at our, when we scream at our celebrity class and our leadership class and our institutional class, whether it be religious or secular or, or business class. We're screaming at ourselves. We should be screaming at the mirror. We should look in the mirror in the morning and be like, I have to do better. And then, you know, I, I got to think about these things better. I have to ask myself, don't dismiss it. That's the work we're supposed to do on earth. That's the real work. So before we can worry about mother nature and rivers and streams, hugging trees, we're not hugging these babies. You can hug these trees all you want. Human trafficking is real. It's considered more of a, a commodity than actual drugs now and, 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 and counterfeit products and counterfeit currency. It's human beings are being bought and sold. In 2022, sex slavery, child slavery, human beings, you know, thinking they're going to go to a different country. And then all of a sudden now someone takes their passport and says, now you have to work here in perpetuity. What? And you can't leave. You are a non-citizen working. Sound familiar? Have no way to leave. No resources. You get paid. You don't even get paid in money. You get paid in, 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 in food and shelter. Tethered to your labor. Without compensation, so you can't even bring get, get, send money back to wherever it is you're from, which was the whole idea in the first place. Leaving your village to go someplace else to send money back. What? These things are all happening right now. So when I say these things, I don't mean to diminish what's going on in Ukraine with many of my friends that are that are uh, you know whose hearts go out to Ukraine in particular. I don't mean to say, well, there's things going on in other parts of the world that you haven't paid attention to. So why make me, what makes the Ukraine more special than that place? I'm not exactly saying that, but to a certain degree, I'm saying, hey, there's a lot going on in the world. Why don't you know about it? And it, now that you know about it, how does it make you feel? Do you feel as much empathy for them as you do for others that you've empathized with historically or in the present time? That's the question. Hopefully we'll get an answer. But in any case, guys, until we speak again, bye-bye.